I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. Did you know that 12,000 Australians this year will be diagnosed with lung cancer? 9% of all cancers identified are of the lung and it is the fifth most common form of cancer with men affected more common than females. Yes, lung cancer is still a very severe cancer and still affecting many people each year and it costs billions to society because of longevity and the cost of treatment. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss the causes of lung cancer, the incidence, the diagnosis and treatment options. Good day and welcome to Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, a program born during COVID times to emulate that general chit-chat and banter around the hospital with the idea of educating the medical student and GP alike. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide, and it's my pleasure to bring Aussie Med Ed to you. And today we're lucky enough to be joined by Professor Hubertus Jersman, a respiratory and sleep physician from the Royal Adelaide Hospital. We're going to talk to him about lung cancer, the classification, diagnosis, investigations and treatment options. Professor Jersman has a particular interest in interventional pulmonology. He diagnoses many cases of lung cancer each year and refers them to the multidisciplinary lung cancer meeting for discussion on best treatment. He also performs palliative laser treatment on some lung cancers. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast has been produced, the Ghana people, and pay my respect to the elders both past, present and emerging. Well, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Hubertus Jersman to Aussie Med Ed. Hubertus has an interest in human genetics and has a PhD in immunobiology. He's a professor of the School of Medicine at the University of Adelaide and enjoys a mix of treating patients, research in the lab, as well as clinical and, of course, teaching. His passion is conservation and sustainability. He lectures on the effects of climate change on health at both Flinders University of South Australia and the University of Adelaide. He mostly rides to work but does have an electric car for those longer trips. Well, welcome, Hubertus. It's great to have you on Aussie Med Ed. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's brilliant to have you here. And obviously, as a respiratory physician, I thought it'd be great to talk about lung cancer. It's a condition which obviously had a lot of information in the media in the past, but we don't hear quite as much about it. But I believe it's still quite as prevalent as it was, or is the incidence declining? Only a little bit, because the lack time of the exposure to smoking would mean that the real decline will come further in the future after I retire. So what is actually the prevalence of lung cancer? I record it as about 12,000 cases each year and that actually men are more affected than females, but is it is that still the same prevalence or incidence that occurs or is it actually more than that in Australia? We have, per annum, we have about 13,000 new cases and it's the fifth commonest cancer in Australia, which doesn't sound very high in the ranking, but it is the deadliest cancer to have. So it's number one on the death list, but number five on the how common it is list. And the patients can present with either primaries or secondaries. What's the most common type of presentation? If all people with lung cancer present, even now in this day and age, with all the new techniques that we have, the five-year survival is only 20%. And because in the early stage, the survival is much higher, this means, as you imply, that people present too late. But often when they present, we find the primaries and the secondaries at the same time. Mm -hmm. Cancer doesn't hurt in the lung, may not even cause breathlessness. And when the patient presents, it's often too late. And the two examples on the opposite end that I have is some grey nomad that retired on the East Coast, bought a caravan and made it to Port Augusta, coughed up blood and was found to have end-stage metastatic stage for lung cancer. Whereas the other end of the spectrum is the insurance salesman 
who wants to have a life insurance increased, gets a chest X-ray, sees a tiny lesion, we diagnose it as early stage one lung cancer and cure him. So this is sort of both ends of the spectrum. That leads to the point that how do we find out cases as early as possible? Certainly that must make it difficult for treatment. Does the type of cancer affect the prognosis and the chance of recurrence or success in cure? Yeah, those large cell or adenosquamous, they're all called non-small cell cancers, whereas the other ones are small cell cancers. Small cell cancers seem to have are more undifferentiated and spread easier, and often surgery is not possible, so they do have a worse prognosis. And the non-small ones have a slightly better prognosis, do they? Well, it depends. So the, all cancers have stages, and if you think about how advanced the cancer is, stage one, would be finding a small cancer and nothing else, and they have up to 80% five-year survival. Stage two would be a slightly bigger cancer, maybe one lymph node. They still have up to 40% or 50% five-year survival. But stage three, it means it's so in the middle and in the lymph nodes that it's not totally spread out, but you can't cut it out. And these people only have 10 to 30% chance of being alive five years later. And stage four where it has spread somewhere, then it's between 0 and 3% survivors. When I tell you that overall it's 20, and you hear these figures from 80 down to 0, you automatically know that people are just simply presenting too late or found too late. And are these four stages, they're parts of the TNM type classification, are they, determined on tumor size, metastases, and nodes, etc.? They are, yeah. And are one particular type of cancer more likely to present in as a stage one versus one type in stage four? I got the impression that the small cells are more likely to be stage fours when they presented. Yeah, the small cell doesn't have these stages. They just have limited and extensive. They don't have these stages from one to four. That's a non-small cell uh, have these stages. And small cell is either limited or extensive. Extensive means north and south of the diaphragm in the middle of the body, whereas limited means just in the chest. And then we try some more aggressive treatment, but it's not as helpful as the other cancers. Now, I understand the small cells are about 15% of presentations or diagnoses, while the non-smalls are about 85 We don't keep these kind of figures because it's not clinically useful. We don't keep those statistics for our institution, and what's published in North America or Europe is not necessarily what we see here. If it has clinical utility, we would collect this data and work off it. But whether our cancers present 10%, 15 or 20% small cell, it's just, it doesn't have any particular impact on our clinical practice. How would a lung cancer normally present? We mentioned before that they can present with metastases. If they're a primary cancer which is localised in the lung, what is the main way they present to yourself? Well, they don't. If it's a cancer just in the lung, They often present by accident. For example, someone cleans the gutter before the next rainstorm, falls off the ladder, thinks he's broken a rib, gets an X-ray, and we see the cancer and we cure that patient because they're a beautiful stage one situation. Whereas once you have these symptoms of weight loss and night sweats and funny-looking fingers and coughing up blood and all these sort of symptoms, or hoarseness of the voice, more often than not, it's already too late for cure. Not always, but so once the symptoms come that the textbooks for students list, then it's often too late. And the problem that we have with students and young doctors, they learn the typical presentation symptoms from the book. And then they think if they don't find them talking to a patient, the patient will be all right. But these symptoms are actually quite rare. 
So if you really want to know or suspect something, you need to do a CT scan. Right. Is there a role for uh, screening like there is in breast cancer, such as a regular chest X-ray or occasional CT scan? You're raising a very, very important and very topical point. Over the years, we've done those annual or biannual chest X-rays, but any research done on those always showed that they have no value. But we had nothing else, so we keep doing them. What has come across from America and Europe is low-dose, high-resolution CT scanning. So we do these low-dose scans. Low-dose means not so much radiation. And that is shown to find cancers that are otherwise missed. The problem with this kind of technique, that the CT scans are so precise, they find a lot of things. We call them UBOs, unidentified bright objects. They find a lot of things that then the patient and the doctor can't leave and want to investigate. So it's potentially risky, costly, resource-intensive investigations. And from about 300 cases, only seven are cancers and 293 are false positives. So the issue is, and the Cancer Council of Australia wants this rolled out here. The federal government has offered funding, and we are going to get the screening here soon. But the sweet spot has to be found. If you screen everyone who goes shopping in Randall Mall, then you have a lot of innocent people with some funny lesion that get investigated. If you tighten up the rules so much, you miss quite a few cancers. So we have to, the challenge has to be to find those people in whom the CT scanning is most valuable. So active smokers and heavy smokers with a bit of fibrosis and COPD and so on. But that's what we are currently working on to get the most out of this technique sounds like in my previous podcast, we talked about artificial intelligence and the use of that to help diagnose or help uh, determine which, which people need further investigations. This sounds like a perfect role for analysing the presentations or people that are more likely to have a positive test and get benefit from this screening mode. Has it been used in this sort of scenario or is this saying that's for the future? You are extremely switched on, I must say. The radiology conference, Australian scientific meeting, was in Adelaide last weekend. And I spoke at that conference, and there were lots of stands in the exhibition area where German and US and Australian companies were offering their artificial intelligence software to go over those scans and predict which of them are the false lesions and which are the right lesions. So you are spot on. This is exactly one of the tools that will make this technology more useful. Well, that's brilliant to hear. Um, moving on to the presentation. So the Often the ones that are treatable are the incidental findings. What is Of the ones that have come in quite late, what is the most common type of presentation? Is it still the coughing up blood or is it shortness of breath or weight loss? Of all those, which, which one would you see as the most common type of presentation in that scenario? That's very difficult to say because it's so variable. Often multiple symptoms are there at the same time. But invariably, when you ask the patient whether it's coughing up a lot, a breathless or blood, they always admit that it has been there for quite some time and they kind of ignored it or try to forget about it, which is a really important message for patients is that if you have blood in your paper on the toilet, it could be colon cancer get investigated. If you cough up blood, this is never normal. And even if we do a scan on someone who, who doesn't have cancer, it would be a shame to miss it when it was still treatable. He said the blood could be the surface of the air tube and the patient coughs it up. It doesn't mean it's already too late. So that could be a very lucky thing to cough a bit of blood, find it early and cure the patient. But if you then sit on this for four months, it could well be too late already. Other forms of presentations are the perineoplastic type syndromes. 
You mentioned the clubbing of the fingers earlier. What are the other ones you might see or a medical student might need to learn about as a way of presentations? And what are the more common types of perineoplastic type syndromes that occur? These perineoplastic syndromes are not really common. They're exciting when you find them as a med student. I remember finding them as an intern or resident and was very excited because it's exactly book predicts, but it's not very common. There could be a very high calcium with tummy pains and dehydration and nausea. could be very high calcium, which is not necessarily secondaries in the bone. It could be a, a hormone-like structure that the cancer puts out. The other one is an inappropriate ADH syndrome, where some antidiuretic hormone-like substances made by the cancer, people retain a lot of water and become diluted. They can even have fits and confusion because they don't pee out the water and the salt in the body is the same, but the water goes up. So they have what we call hyponatremia, low sodium in the blood. But these this are not very common presentations. As an orthopedic surgeon, one of the ones I always get excited about learning was the pancos tumor, the brachial plexus and the Horner syndromes and things that can occur from that. But to this day, I really don't think I've seen one. Is that something you've seen or is that just really something from the textbooks as well? I've probably seen five in my life, but I'm known nearly retirement age. So again, the textbook describes them, gives them a name, Horner, and then everyone looks for them. And if you find them, it feels exciting, but then that means the patient isn't likely curable. But the absence, the data for med students is that they think the absence of those things, hemoptysis, coughing up blood, Horner's, clubbing, that the absence somehow means it couldn't be lung cancer. And that's a big error because those typical, so-called typical presenting signs from the book are less than 50% of cases or even less. Now, you've touched upon the causation with smoking. Is that the main cause or the predominant cause of lung cancers or what other causes can there be as well? I had a table once with the 10 commonest causes and the first seven were smoking. Air pollution in traffic, industrial exposures, especially asbestos, all contribute to give you one example, if you breathe in asbestos at work, you have a fourfold chance of getting lung cancer. But if you're a smoker and breathe asbestos at work, you have a 58 chance of getting lung cancer. So these things are not little add-ons. They multiply each other. So the same holds for severe traffic pollution, uh, not having smelled diesel once a week, but having a lot of pollution or at work, diesel mechanics. Uh, so there are exposures that are important. If you look at our refugees coming from Africa or Afghanistan, some of them have an indoor hearth and they burn cow dung as an indoor fire to cook indoors. So they have a significant biomass exposure and they can have this chronic obstructive pulmonary disease thing, COPD, which in itself contributes to the formation of cancer. And we should also mention that fibrosis of the lung for whatever reason, is in itself a cancerous condition. And it was initially not realized because people with fibrosis didn't live very long. So they never came around to forming a cancer. But now we have some treatment and we see fibrosis in people present for longer and then we find cancers. What about things like shisha and these new vaping and things? Have they got risk factors as well? Absolutely. The problem with illegal substances that are not as common as tobacco, you can't produce robust scientific data or prospective data for various reasons, it's not possible, which often gets used by protagonists saying, well, you can't prove to us it causes cancer, so we're doing. But it's burnt biomass, 
inhaled straight into the lungs or the odds are that it will cause cancer. The intensity is less smoke than cigarette smoke, then it might be a slightly less cancerogenic. And it's the same with vaping. So vaping has formaldehyde. And if you use flavors like banana and chocolate, there's lots of toxic substances in there. And in the laboratory in North Terrace, we have shown how toxic they are on lung cells. But you can't really run a prospective trial on children, make them inhale this and see how many get cancers 35 years later. So again, that's used for saying, oh, well, you haven't proven to us that this can cause cancer. We view vaping smoke or vapes as a diluted carcinogen. So it's less toxic than cigarette smoke. And people say, that's great. So we smoke that. But we say to them, this is like hitting a concrete wall with a car without a seatbelt at 70 k's an hour. And vaping would be hitting the same concrete wall in a car with a seatbelt at 40 k's an hour. Would you do it? Why would you have to do it? Why? Yeah, Don't do it. So we only use vaping for hopelessly addicted nicotine addicts. They're declared never stoppers. So if you give them vapes, they are slightly in less danger. Making vapes available to the population will lead children to get nicotine addicted, move on to smoking, and it's a catastrophe of public health. So that's the duality of vaping. So while it can be good to save a handful of nicotine addicts, it must never be made available to the rest of the population. That's our view as lung specialists. Well, I always consider the lung as one of the most delicate organs in the body. Someone tried to say that wasn't the case, but how would you consider the lung? Is it still the most delicate one or is it still fairly robust? In a way, it's robust because to die 45 years after massive asbestos exposure or 50 years after massive industrial quantity smoking, it might be robust. But it's also very delicate. It's an immune organ and a lot of things can trigger immune responses where things go wrong, sarcoidosis and various diseases, we don't know what causes them, but things can go wrong in the lung by triggering immune responses. Once you've actually diagnosed or picked up the possibility of a lung cancer, perhaps either a chest X-ray or CT scan, what are the other investigations you might do to further investigate it or stage it? I'd like to let you know that Aussie Media is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. The principle is first proof the diagnosis, then stage the disease stage the patient, and then find the best treatment. So what do I mean by that? There are lots of things that look like lung cancer and they aren't. So you can't do major surgery or irradiation on something that just looks like it and cause all this damage for something benign. So we go in and take some form of biopsy, whether that's a little bottle brush or tiny biopsy forceps or even local anesthetic to the skin and a needle through the back. Whatever it is, we want to know, is it cancer? And as we started this discussion, we also want to know, is it a small cell or non-small cell? And more importantly, nowadays, we have these modern treatments that are different from patient to patient. Depends what the cell looks like. So we need a lot of live cells, run them through complicated testing for later and see what kind of cancer it is. It's becoming more complicated. What do I mean by staging? We want to know whether it's a localized or a spread cancer. So we have a few scans for that. One is called PET scan, nothing to do with small animals, positron emission tomogram, radioactive activity scan. It shows you whether the body has hotspots in it or is clear. 
We do CT of the brain because sometimes the cancer goes there. The CT of the chest that you use for diagnosing will also tell you whether the liver is clean, the adrenal glands are clean, some bones are clean. So we knew all this information, put it together and say this is localized. By staging the patient, this is a cheeky sort of term that I've coined, is nowadays the average age of our patients is going up. It can be in the mid-80s. And if a patient technically has a small cancer, but is 87, had a big stroke, has four stents in the coronaries, is blind, demented, and has diabetes on insulin, he may not be fit enough to survive any kind of surgery. So we call the ones that have spread through the body inoperable cancers, but we call the ones that are small, theoretically take outable, but are in a patient that can't survive any surgery, medically inoperable. And that's more and more important because our patients get older. And then when we have all this information, we convene a weekly meeting with radiologists, pathologists, radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, surgeons, they're all in one room. And these cases get presented in a debate and choose what is the best way forward for this patient. And that recommendation gets conveyed to the patient and discussed and then acted upon if the patient is happy. And in those interventional possible cases, what are the options for treatment? Obviously, they'll vary depending on what you think the actual specific pathology is for the condition. But what are the various options that a student would particularly need to know about? The best option is to remove it by taking the lobe out with the cancer in it. We call it lobectomy. That's the best option. And that can be, I believe, done through thoracoscopy as well, as well as open. Is that correct? Yeah, it can be done through thoracoscopy. It used to be all open surgery. But we have some surgeons, and if if the patient is suitable and the, the cancer is small, you can actually get it out through a thoracoscopy, so make an incision between two ribs and get it out. It minimizes the pain in the rib cage afterwards. Usually it's done open, is it? Either a long cut through the ribs, put the hands in, or a small cut through the ribs, put cameras and instruments in. That's the thoracoscopic way, whereas the open one is called thoracotomy. Just make a big cut, get the ribs apart and get it out. Some cases, when they're sort of really early, there's nothing else. But if some slightly more advanced cases are supplemented with three courses of chemo after the surgery you can get a significant improvement in survival. Then we have this treatment where it is technically not operable, technically, because it's right in the middle. Then we use bundled strong x-rays called radiotherapy in conjunction with chemotherapy and still have up to 30% cure, depends on the case. What sort of chemotherapy agents would be typically be used in this scenario? Is it a particular one that we should know or is it highly specialised that's really reserved for an oncologist? The best chemo are around platin-based agents, so cisplatin, carboplatin, plus either gemcitabine or etoposide or some other chemicals. But what we have now is this exciting discovery that these tumour cells have either certain receptors on the surface or certain molecules inside called oncogenes. And if we measure them, and industry has now developed tablets or injections monoclonal antibodies that neutralize this molecule. So we can actually use this modern treatment, which is not strictly chemo, so the hair doesn't fall out and the diarrhea doesn't come. It's not bad. If the patient can tolerate that treatment, you may be able to hold the cancer at bay. And there's a very interesting story. There's a physicist from Adelaide who now lives in the US called Paul Davies. He's a very famous physicist. Him and his wife Paula got asked by Obama to join a group of physicists 
to help oncologists find ways in a physical way, hyperthermia, hypothermia, hyperoxia, whatever physical way to improve cancer outcomes because they were so poor and they were unsuccessful. And he, as a non-doctor, had a fresh look at this whole cancer business. And he said, okay, you are trying to find the holy grail. Why don't you do it like the doctors treating AIDS? They've come to terms with the fact that currently there is no cure for AIDS. There might be in the future, but there still isn't now. And they invented all these tablets that stop the virus. And the, these patients with HIV AIDS take two or three of these tablets every morning, and they can live for 30 years without dying from AIDS. And he said, why don't you develop these kind of tablets for lung cancer and then take one, two or three in the morning and you can live another 15 years. And if you're already 85, then you would be dying from something else by the time the cancer kills you, old age or stroke. So it's a real paradigm shift to think that controlling incurable disease is a really good goal. Of course, we didn't think that initially, right? a physicist has to tell us this, because nobody would survive that kind of approach with carboplatin and gemcitabine. You take six courses, you're sick as a dog. You know? But with these new tablets, I can see a way that we're getting this way, that we can control the disease in some individuals and they don't die from it anymore. So that's interesting. So these aren't chemotherapeutic agents. What are these class of drugs called? They're called immunotherapy because they neutralize receptors or molecules that tell the cancer to grow. So you neutralize them. So the cancer doesn't die, but they don't spread anymore. So they're not chemo, they're immunotherapy. And more and more come out every two or three months to get some more on the market. It's quite an exciting time. Well, that's excellent. I guess they're quite expensive, are they? And do they need a special approval before a patient can receive it, or do they need to be included in trials before they can actually be used on the individual patient? Now you're spoiling a good story. <laughs> yes, they are very expensive. And whenever there's evidence published that they really work very well, the government committee will put them on the subsidized drug list so the patient can get them for $41.30, even if they cost several thousand dollars behind the scenes. It's the same for breast cancer, melanoma. Patient groups put pressure on government, rightly so. But eventually, if they're really worth their money, these drugs come onto the what we call PBS, Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, and are subsidized. And I think as a civilized, very rich country, we owe that to our patients. It's a philosophical approach, but I think that as, as a rich country, we should try and afford this treatment for our citizens. Moving on, Hubertus, what about the instance of mesothelioma and asbestos exposure? And how does that compare to the new condition of silicosis now and industrial exposure to the granites and other benchtops that are currently being associated with lung disease? Mesothelioma is really the only cancer that is so typically asbestos. Silica wouldn't cause mesothelioma. What people don't realise that asbestos is not gone. We don't mine it anymore. Wittenum is disincorporated. Yes, true. The boiler makers and electricians know about the dangers of asbestos, shipbuilders. What the danger is still is that houses in Australia built before 1986 are full of asbestos until proven otherwise. And that especially in Melbourne and Sydney, Carlton, where these houses are, people can barely afford to buy one and then watch a home renovation show and go to Bunnings, get all the material and start renovating. And they're cutting through weatherboard, they're cutting through bricks in the fireplaces, and all of this is asbestos. And then with an enormous lag time later, 35 years later, we had this lawyer yeah, die of mesothelioma, and we couldn't work out where the hell did she get the exposure to asbestos from. And then we found that as a young lawyer 
and with her partner, they had renovated this house, which turned out to be full of asbestos. So it's, it's a really hidden way that asbestos is still with us, and we need to be very mindful of that. Yeah. That's asbestos. Now, silica is not so much a cancer-causing agent. It simply kills young people. Silica has been in our lungs since we started mining about 7,000 years ago, so it's, it's not brand new. But what's new is that we have this uh, sexy stones for renovations of kitchens and all the synthetic stone and is a, a mixture of silica dust and resin pressed together with beautiful colors beautiful patterns and very good properties so you put a hot pot in it nothing goes wrong whereas if you do that to marble the marble may crack if you drop something it bounces off if you do it to marble the marble gets a hole in it but marble has only got it's so soft because it has only two percent silica. The rock in the mines where the coal miners had silicosis and got always checked every five years has four percent silica. Now these kitchen stones have ninety-five percent silica. So we found in Queensland, New South Wales, here and also in Victoria that young people in their late twenties, early thirties had more silicosis than someone who worked all their lives in the British coal mines. And some of them had died so quickly that we even couldn't organize a lung transplant for them. Now, because silica can cause fibrosis and fibrosis can cause cancer, theoretically it's a cancer risk, but most people don't actually live long enough to get cancer. They die from the silicosis. Do you think this is something that should be legislated for the future? Like, should it be appropriate for people to have still have these type of bench tops down the track? Well, it's a big risk for the future. It, I must make very clear, it's not a risk for you and the listeners who have that in their kitchen. Having this stone is totally risk-free. The risk comes from manufacturing it, cutting and polishing it and installing it. Once it's installed, nothing bad will happen. Uh, no silica will ever enter your lung from cutting onions on that bench top. Totally safe. But the poor people installing it, they often come from small firms, non-unionized, there may be workers with not full command of English or high education levels, so they don't know what they're doing and what they're handling. And they either wear no mask or some paper mask when they should wear proper respirators. The laws are clear how this has to be handled. The manufacturer tells the people how to handle it. The law says what should or shouldn't happen. But you and I know that in Anglo-Saxon societies that even the best law is often very poorly policed and not punished. So on paper, the laws are excellent. In reality, we have a lot of people exposed to dust. So there's a lot of work in progress. So silicosis and silicon exposure, particularly in these occupational settings, really is quite serious and probably just as important as lung cancer by the sounds of it. Moving back to lung cancer, though, once a patient has actually had treatment for the lung cancer, either the, the lobectomy or the radiation treatment and the chemotherapy, how are they monitored down the track? Do they have regular CT scans or what do you do to keep an eye on it for surveillance? So the question was how we follow people once they have their treatment. That's correct. Again, there's, the science is not steadfast, but we regard people for the first five years as in remission when there's no cancer visible. And after five years, we call them cured. So we see them, depending how well we thought, so the job was done on how risky it is. We see them maybe two or three or four months afterwards with some either X-ray or CT scan to see clinically how they're doing and has anything come back. And then we gradually push out the interval. And when they are over their five years, we declare them cured. The slight problem with that approach is that while that cancer is now done and dusted, it's used to punch, the lung has been exposed to a lot of cigarette smoke and they have COPD 
That means at any time another lung cancer could form. So we sometimes keep seeing them, not to wait for that lung cancer to come back eight years later, but to check whether a new one, a second one, has come up. And my record is one young man of 77 is still alive, with having had this third cancer a year ago. The first one operated on, the second one radical radio chemotherapy with bundled x-rays and a bit of chemo. And the third one, we tried radiotherapy again, but each time you do that, you burn a bit of friendly fire lung as well, and he has emphysema. So he's now fairly breathless, but not on oxygen, and with the third cancer and still alive. So it's, uh, no patient is like another. They're all subtly different, like Qantas aircraft. What percentage of patients who do survive a lung cancer would actually get a second cancer? Do you have those sort of figures at your fingertips? No, the literature claims it's sort of 10%. That's, that's way more than what I've seen. But I guess it's the vigilance. The patient has to be vigilant, the wife in particular, and also the doctor. I don't think it's 10%, but it's sufficient enough to keep an eye on them. And also there's some percentage comes from if you had a cancer before, your body must be obviously susceptible to forming cancers. I mean, we have some people that had colon cancer, thyroid cancer, bladder cancer, all these sort of cancers. And we know you and I had that even at med school that there's some families with cancer genes. But not everyone where it runs in the family has an identified gene. But we know something is wrong. So all we can do is heighten vigilance, make sure they have their breast tests and their prostate tests and maybe lung screening when it comes out. You know, that's all we can do. It's a fine line between making a patient paranoid or neglecting a patient. So we need to find the golden middle way. Yeah, yeah well, that's a good point. Look, are there any tumor markers you can use to help identify types of lung cancers at all, or like particularly the non-small cell type cancers? No, not really, no. And if there ever will be, there will be checking for recurrence rather than these sort of shotgun screening tests. No, we don't have those tumor markers. There's an interesting observation that was made in Japan and Germany that certain dogs can actually smell people with cancer, not just lung, colon, stomach. And in Japan, there was a paper where the patient had the colon cancer removed and then sadly got a recurrence and the dog got agitated so the dog could actually smell the recurrence. A lot of researchers have tried to get the smell of the patient through mass spectrometry and find out with the so-called electronic nose what is the molecule that these animals can smell and they haven't been successful for the time being. Certainly, certainly. I've heard reports on that. There's very interesting sort of thoughts. Finally, the buzzwords of the era are sleep apnea and the diseases associated with that, that being the risk of heart disease and even dementia. Obviously, this could lead to pulmonary fibrosis, I suspect, and then could it lead to cancer as well, or is that not? there's been no association with it? That's a really good question. I've not found any evidence as far as the connection to pulmonary fibrosis goes, but there are several papers claiming that there is actually a slight increase in cancer risk for having untreated sleep apnea. Now, the likely culprit there is that the low oxygen puts a very pro-inflammatory molecule into action called HIF-1-alpha, hypoxia-inducible factor 1-alpha, which is highly inflammatory and cause all sort of mischief. It's possible that in susceptible people that they can get their fingers in the pie of cancer forming. It's definitely not a very strong signal, but there are sort of reports and papers coming in claiming this. I don't use it to scare my patients into wearing CPAP machines because I think the association is fairly slim and I feel a bit guilty by using that 
as a tool of coercion. Excellent. Well, look, I think we've covered a fair bit tonight and really appreciate you being on Aussie MedEd. It's been great having you on, Hubertus, and I'd like to thank you very much for coming on this podcast. So once again, it's been brilliant having you here. I hope you've enjoyed your time. Can I say one last thing? In Australia every day, 8,700 every year, 8,700 people die of lung cancer and only 1,200 on the road. And correctly, the 1,200 road deaths get all the attention and the public publicity campaigns and so on, which I'm not criticizing. But why does lung cancer that kills seven times as many people get hardly any publicity? So thank you, Gavin, for being part of this publicity. And it needs to be put out there that seven times as many deaths than road deaths. That's exactly right. And I really appreciate you put your time. It's certainly something that's in the thought of my mind is this is something we used to hear a lot about in the past and it sort of became very quiet recently. So I wondered more about it. And so I really appreciate finding out a bit more about it for today. So thank you very much, Hubertus, for coming on Aussie Med. Very good having you on board. Thanks for enduring me. (laughs) Have a good evening. Bye. Thank you. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to our podcast. I'd like to remind you that the information provided today is just for general medical advice and does not pertain to one particular medical condition or one way of treating a particular condition. If you have any concerns about information raised today, please do not hesitate to contact your general practitioner for further information. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please don't hesitate to give us a like or tell your friends about it or give us a positive review. We look forward to presenting another podcast to you in the near future on a different topic. Until then, stay safe. Thank you very much.